This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Amy Brockman to talk about her new book, Should You Believe Wikipedia? Online Communities and the Construction of Knowledge, published by Cambridge University in 2022. Dr. Amy Brockman is a professor and senior associate chair in the School of Interactive Computing in the College of Computing at Georgia Tech. She's also a member of the Graphics, Visualization, and Usability Center. Her research focuses on social computing with interest in collaboration, social movements, content moderation, and internet research ethics. Amy, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Um, Amy, can you first uh, tell us a little about yourself, how uh, you became interested in how the book came about, first how you became interested in in your field of expertise, and then how this book came about? You know, uh, I got my PhD at the MIT Media Lab, where for my dissertation, I developed a virtual world for kids. My research for many years was about education and how kids could learn on the Internet. Uh, But it was also about the Internet and virtual worlds and uh, online communities. And over time, I became more interested in the online communities part uh, and less in doing educational technology. Uh, and my students and I do research on online communities and collaboration and content moderation. And how did this book come about? I think it's a very topical issue because I'm sure there's always uh, people who are talking about Wikipedia, should we believe it or not? And it was very intrigued when I saw the title and immediately got the book. So can you tell us how the book came about? Should you believe Wikipedia? The title chapter, Should You Believe Wikipedia, is what motivated me to write the book. I wrote that chapter first because I felt like if you understand a little bit of epistemology, a little bit of the theory of knowledge, that you really can understand the internet uh, much better. And in fact, it's impossible to understand the internet without knowing a little bit of epistemology. So I first wrote that chapter, and then I thought, I'll write an entire book about epistemology and the internet. And then I realized that that would take me 20 years. Uh, So 
instead, I thought, well, I've been teaching this class called Design of Online Communities, and I would like to share all the things I've learned in teaching that class over the last 20 years. So the book became uh, about design of online communities in general with understanding knowledge in online communities as uh, one chapter. And uh, before getting into the details of the book, uh, there is this quote that I really love that is on page three and I'll read it and I would do, but it would be great if you could uh, elaborate on that. This book is about the interaction between design and social behavior, all the ways that the design of the internet shapes the human behavior and knowledge that emerge as a result. Uh, yes, uh, the design of software uh, and online patterns of interaction shapes what people do and how they behave. And what's happening on the internet now, which is disappointing, is that a lot of the platforms are designing with the sole purpose of being successful financial companies. Now, I, mm. I understand that they need to be successful and that's their reason for being, but they're making decisions that are not bringing out the best in people. They're bringing out the most advertising views. And I think we're in a moment in history where there's a potential to move to more social media hosted by nonprofits that we can design with human-centered values to say, how can we rethink the way communication technology works in a way that makes us better as individuals and as communities? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. When I think we'll, we'll, we'll kind of delve into that a little bit deeper as we go uh, further ahead. Uh, Let's talk about our communities. So what is your definition of community? So uh, I'm a big fan of category theory. Uh, category theory says that the way categories are structured in the mind is by their prototypes or best members. So for instance, uh, the, the prototypical example of bird for most Americans is a robin. And an emu is a member of the category bird, but is a peripheral member of the category. It's a bird, but it's pretty different from our most common member of the category bird. And we understand categories by understanding them in relationship to their best members. Categories have fuzzy boundaries, and we understand them based on their prototypes. Community is itself a category. And the prototypes we have for categories, our best examples, are typically things like church groups or uh, small towns. When we think about an online community, you can think about how it is like and unlike our mental models for what a community is. How is, this, how is life in this online group like or unlike life in a small town? It was a very interesting point you brought about about category, because I was thinking of um, online groups, which are sort of organized by these cults. I mean, those who promote misinformation or groups that are that 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 promote state propagandas, and how they regulate their own behavior and also how they impact other people on online by spreading misinformation. But anyway, that's a different thing. And uh, there was also another term in your book which I really loved third space. So what is a third space and how does an online community constitute a third space? 
So a, a third place is a place that's neither work nor home. We all need third places. And uh, there's a wonderful book by sociologist Ray Oldenburg called The Great Good Place, which is about how third places serve this important function in our lives and what the characteristics of a third place are. So, for instance, uh, Oldenburg would say, uh, Oldenburg, I, I wish I had his job. I am envious. He uh, went and hung out in bars and coffee shops and community centers and observed people and wrote it up. Uh, and he noticed things like, in a successful third place, conversation is the main activity and noted that third places have a leveling effect where people from different social classes feel comfortable interacting. Well, it turns out that communities on the internet can function like Oldenburg's idea of a third place in a really nice way. And, uh, and the people who can create information or construct knowledge on Wikipedia, they also constitute a community or maybe not the third, but they also, because I'm trying to get a few definitions and then we get to the oh. idea of Wikipedia. The, the people editing Wikipedia absolutely form a community. I think when you first become part of Wikipedia, when you first contribute to it, you see a collection of pages. But the more you participate, the more you see people and social roles and patterns of behavior. Uh, and uh, it's a, a lovely community because it's a group of people working to build something of great value to the world. And you have a lot of examples uh, which we'll talk about. So let's talk about the idea of collaboration. Uh, that's also part of in a book called Collaboration. Um, the, the mechanisms that are in place to protect Wikipedia from vandalism, what are these? How, how does peer production work on Wikipedia? Peer production on Wikipedia works by having people correct errors. And if you think about what knowledge is, that the way that we know that something is true is fundamentally social, the way that Wikipedia works uh, leverages social epistemology perfectly. So the more people agree something is true, the more we know it's true. So let's compare a Wikipedia page to a refereed journal article. If I write a refereed journal article, the highest level of science, three experts review it. And at one moment in time, those three experts say, yes, this is correct. This is worth publishing. But those three experts may not understand every aspect of the content. They do their best, but if there's something they don't understand, they might say, I hope one of the other reviewers checked that part. It's a good standard for reliability of knowledge, but it's by no means perfect. Compare that to a Wikipedia page where it, thousands of people could review whether a piece of information is correct. And the standard is to support anything you write with strong citations. Furthermore, a journal article is checked at one moment in time and then becomes fixed. A Wikipedia page, if something changes or something new becomes known, can be updated continuously. So if you think about knowledge as something that people validate as true, and the more people validate it, the more we can have confidence in it, in some ways you could say Wikipedia is one of the stronger, can be one of the form, stronger forms of knowledge that exists. 
the comparison I made between Wikipedia and a science journal was quite interesting. And I was, so I'm, I'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit here. I was uh, reminded of that thing that happened a few years ago, so-called affair, if uh, you remember that that was, I guess, 20 years ago, where this professor of physics put together a bunch of philosophical quotations and he published it in a very um, high-level journal. But then he can, he just wanted to show that the language of postmodernism uh, can easily be abused. And obviously in science, we have, we have consensus. If there's a consensus that is science among scientists and it's knowledge, it sort of works the same way, I guess, on Wikipedia. But are there are you aware of examples where people might have manipulated the content of Wikipedia for a particular purpose, political purpose, to spread their own kind of ideology? So um, Paul Sokol's hoax on the journal was shining light on the fact that the journal review process for a particular discipline was weak and was vulnerable to uh, being pranked. Uh, He was not being very nice about it. I think that was an irresponsible way to express his displeasure, but it certainly is a memorable instance in time. Uh, Wikipedia pages, their reliability depends on how many people have edited them. So uh, uh, the example I give in my book is, for uh, example, if you look at the Wikipedia page of someone suddenly elevated from a position of relative obscurity to prominence. Uh, Let's say there is a new pope. Uh, Follow the Wikipedia page of that person after they are elevated to that position. It's an amazing thing to watch. The page goes from a few lines saying, this is a person who is an archbishop in this city and uh, three more lines about their background. Over the course of a week, it will become a complete account of their entire life and everything they've ever done and their opinions and their history. Uh, And you can look at the history of Wikipedia pages and see how this thing grew over time with literally thousands of people editing and correcting other people. And on high profile pages on Wikipedia, the content is bulletproof. If you change one tiny little thing, someone will fix it if you don't have proof in seconds. The situation is very different for a relatively obscure page. Uh, And I give the example of the fact that uh, the murals in the Massachusetts State House were painted by Edward Brodney. Now, that is on Wikipedia because I put it there. And it stayed there for years with no one ever complaining that there was no citation for that fact uh, because nobody cares about the murals in the Massachusetts State House. Um, Edward Brodney was my great uncle and the only person who cares about the history of those murals is uh, my great aunts and my mother. Uh, So nobody protested that I put that unsighted citation in Wikipedia for that reason. a page like the page about the Massachusetts State House is much less reliable because it's been checked by fewer people. Now, the the irony and the punchline to the story is uh, I wrote about this in my book, and now that Wikipedia page now has a citation for the fact that those murals were painted by Edward Brodney, and the citation is my book. So the citation is my book talking about the fact that there wasn't a citation. 
And uh, you also come up with two good examples. You have two projects, science projects, citizen science and polymath project to discuss the reliability of data um, and, and the scientific valid knowledge that is created. So well, for, for those who are not familiar with these projects, can you describe how they worked or what those projects oh. were? Absolutely. So citizen science is an entire field where people do things like mark whether a galaxy is uh, elliptical or spiral uh, or mark whether there is a lion or a zebra in a picture taken uh, somewhere out in the jungle. Uh, and what they do is to allow volunteers to help with real science uh, and People really enjoy doing this work because they feel like they're contributing to something meaningful. The question arises, how do you know that there really was a lion in that picture and that someone wasn't just clicking randomly? And the answer is you have lots of people do the same task. If one person says there's a lion, there might be a lion. If two people says, say there's a lion, there's probably a lion. If eight people say there's a lion, there's definitely a lion. Uh, and you can calculate how many people you need to independently confirm the same piece of data analysis to have a certain level of certainty that it's true. So there are a thousand different kinds of citizen science projects. Uh, and they're, they're a lot of fun uh, and they take different forms. And there's an entire field of information science research, understanding all the forms that citizen science takes. Uh, the polymath project is one particular example of citizen science, or actually in this case, citizen math, where a group of people got together to prove a novel mathematical theorem. And they had a hundred or so people contributing to the theorem. And it included two fields medalists who are kind of like Nobel Prize winners for math, all the way down to a couple high school math teachers working on an original mathematical proof together. And a collaborative software made that possible. And um, when it comes to peer production, you discuss two challenges that are associated with it, motivation and organization. Well, what are those challenges? Can you elaborate on them, please? So I am fascinated by the ways that groups of people volunteering their time can accomplish great things. Uh, a question arises of what leads people to choose to participate, choose to volunteer. Uh, and also what uh, the difference between understanding people's initial motivation and people's motivation to stay and contribute long term. And what scientists will tell you is that if they have volunteers helping with their project, a couple dedicated volunteers are much more useful than a thousand people who just drop by quickly because the dedicated volunteers can learn back, learn what they're doing and contribute at a higher level. Uh, so there's a whole field of studying what motivates people to continue contributing, not just contribute initially, but what makes people stay. And I think for a lot of people, it's feeling like you're contributing to something bigger than yourself and also developing relationships with the scientists leading the project. Uh, so those were findings from a study by Dana Rotman about why people contribute to uh, citizen science. Uh, or the other uh, piece about peer production is organization. If you can take a task and break it into independent pieces, then you can get lots of people to help. When people need to 
collaborate more directly. So I can't do anything till I talk to you. It becomes harder to make progress. Tasks that are particularly good for peer production are ones that we can carve into little pieces so that lots of people can grab a little piece and contribute without having to coordinate with others directly. Um, so in, in this part of the book, so the one I'm reading is science or knowledge is knowledge production is a collaborative project, let's say. So if it's a collab, I think I've asked that question, but it would be great if you could sort of elaborate on that. If it's a collaborative enterprise, how can we make sure, or on Wikipedia, apart from having a lot of editors, how can we make sure that the knowledge that is produced is not skewed, is not biased, or it, in science, it's easier to judge that and to measure that. But when it comes, for example, to history, you know, humanities, for example, the sort of knowledge that is produced is difficult to, to, to measure whether it's uh, objective knowledge or not. And I, I, I can give an example myself. It's, I'm from Iran originally, and I sometimes read pages written in Farsi. The situation is there horrible because when I read some history pages on Wikipedia, some of the people who are edit, edit these pages are professor of history, but there are a lot of editors who just simply don't agree with the view on history and they start editing it. So even that guy who is a professor of uh, history doesn't have a lot, can't have a lot of say. Yeah, I know this particular guy because he constantly writes on Twitter about how he can't change different pages. I guess in English it's way easier, but in other languages where there might be fewer people, the situation might be a bit difficult. So the question I have is how can, apart from peer review, are there, and are there any other measures or policies or ways in place to make sure the knowledge is not biased or wrong? Well, uh, it is possible for Wikipedia to have problems, and it does. And the more people edit a page, the less likely it is to have problems. Uh, and, and there's no magic sauce here. That's all there is. So a, a smaller Wikipedia in a language that has fewer editors is going to be less reliable than a bigger Wikipedia that has lots of people editing it and checking it. Um, chapter three in your book, that's where you provide, you, you, you become a little more philosophical in chapter three. We've been talking about knowledge, but let's just define that. What is knowledge? How do you define it? You, you, you come up with two terms, evidentialism and reliabilism in there. So it would be great if you could expand on them. Sure. Uh, knowledge, the formal definition of knowledge is justified true belief. Uh, let's talk about the true part first. That presumes that there is such a thing as true and false. It's not just all relative. It's possible for some things to be provably false or provably true. But it's also the case that to have knowledge of something, it's not enough for it to merely be true. So let's say you are watching a TV game show and there's a prize behind one of the curtains. There's three curtains. And if you pick the curtain with the car, you get a car. And if you pick the curtain with the goat, you get a goat. Uh, if you say, I know the car is behind curtain number two, that is not knowledge unless you have reason to believe the car is there even if the car really is there. If you're just expressing your gut feeling, uh, the fact that it's true is not sufficient, unless the stagehand whispered in your ear, pick curtain number two. So you have to be justified in 
the belief has to be true and you have to be justified in believing it. Now, what does it mean to be justified in believing something? I think the whole internet comes down to a problem of justification. Uh, philosophers take different approaches to justification. The most obvious one is to say any belief must be supported by other beliefs. So uh, if I believe this, then that's supported by facts A, B, and C, and fact A is supported by facts D, E, and F, and we, but then what supports D? And we go all the way down. Uh, it's not a very useful approach because it's very hard to get to a bedrock of reliable belief. Uh, an alternative to that is what we call reliabilism. Reliabilism says some, you're justified in believing something if it is the result of a reliable cognitive process. So uh, let's say, for the sake of argument, Morteza, that you are an expert birder, uh, and I am not. And we both look out the window and say, oh, is that a rare red-spotted flycatcher? Uh, if you're an expert birder, then you, we are justified in believing you. Let's say both of us say, yes, oh, it must be. I'm an amateur. You're not justified in believing me. You're the expert. We're justified in believing you. Uh, and uh, that's uh, an example from Feldman on epistemology. Uh, so uh, something that is reliable is the result of a reliable cognitive process. I think we see all these problems on the internet uh, many times over. So you could say, should I believe this thing I just saw on social media? And one way to approach it would be foundationalism, which is to say, okay, well, what supports this? And then the things that support that, what supports that? And all the way down. A different way would be to say, is this from a source that I trust? Uh, is this from a source that has been reliable in the past? Uh, so you can see how a little bit of basic epistemology gives us uh, some insights into how to understand the internet. Uh when I was a student, I, uh, I shared the office with a colleague of mine when I was doing my PhD in English, and he was also a student of English, but he was doing evolutionary psychology. And he, he used some scientific measure to come up with the conclusions, and we never agreed on anything. We were friends, but we were always arguing. And part of the reason, and I was telling him, look, uh, you need to know the epistemology of science, but to him, truth was objective and that that truth or knowledge was something that had been proven through a, science, a rigorous scientific method. So we never agreed on anything, although we were good friends. Uh, and when, were, when I was reading this part of uh, the book, I said to myself, I wish I knew this book earlier so I could introduce it to him. But the book wasn't written back then anyhow. Uh, so in a way, science is a social, inter I mean, it's a social construction of knowledge in a way uh, that is produced. Yeah. And what are the what is the criteria for truth or for that knowledge? Is it social consensus or expert consensus? Because on Wikipedia, it seems to be a mixture of both. Yeah, I, uh, it's a mixture of both. So uh, I, some people take a subjective view of reality, uh, and some people take a more strongly objective view of reality. And uh, I like the compromise by the philosopher Hilary Putnam, who says, look, the world exists. I can't prove to you that it exists, but let's take it as an assumption that uh, 
I am sitting at a desk. Now, I believe that I'm sitting at a desk and I perceive that desk through my subjective senses. How do we know the desk is really there? Well, if I brought all your listeners in and said, is Amy sitting at a desk? They would all say, yep, I see a desk. So we are all trapped within our subjective perceptions. The high degree of correlation between our subjective perceptions is because the world exists. There is a desk. There is such a thing as a desk, and I am sitting at it, uh, as all your listeners will agree. Uh, let's go to chapter four. And chapter four, I, I love the title, How Does the Internet Change How We Think? Uh, so can you talk about this chapter, please? There more, And I guess it's an important one because more recently there have been a lot of news about how our privacy has been compromised, how our private data has been used by big techs to make us you know, act or think or vote in a different way. Can you talk about this part? of the book? Oh, it's been so long, Morteza. Ask me something more specific. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so let's talk about a community of practice. That's a term we're using. This. What is a community practice and how is knowledge building, building done via these communities of practice? So a community of practice is a group of people who work together to accomplish a goal. And people learn in a community of practice by moving from the periphery to the center. So you start off by making a small contribution and observing the contributions of more experienced members of the community. And then over time, you're able to contribute at a higher level because you had time to learn from the other people who are in the community. And a lot of communities on the internet operate as communities of practice, where people learn to become more full participants in the community by moving from the periphery to the center. And uh, how about the digital identity and the way, how does it impact your interaction with, uh, with, with, with the outside, but also with online knowledge platforms? So we all are always presenting ourselves to others. Uh, the sociologist Irving Goffman wrote about how we all have impressions given and impressions given off. The impressions given are what you intend to communicate, and the impressions given off are what other people actually perceive from how you are acting. Uh, so the way we represent ourselves changes how we interact with others. For example, on the Internet, whether you are identified by your real name or not changes what you say and how you participate. And there are different ways to represent people's personal identity, who they are, and those fundamentally shape the nature of online interaction. Uh, I used to have a Twitter account myself and I had a pseudonym and it made it made, it made it way, way easier for me to interact with others. I was, because you know, Twitter is sometimes like a battlefield especially if you're talking about political issues. So I was always polite, but a lot of people insulted me for my political views. But to be honest, I wasn't insulted that much, I guess, because I had a, <laughs> I had a pseudonym there. and said, okay, people don't know me. They don't know who I am. They cannot, uh, they, they cannot, you know, in real life, they cannot harm me. It made it easier for me to interact. But there was also a trade-off, which was, an anonymity, but people didn't know me. They didn't know my, for example, expertise. And then I said to myself, maybe they don't take my idea seriously because 
simply they don't know who I am. They might be thinking that I'm spreading fake news or false information there. And then I kind of closed that Twitter account and went to Instagram, more or less writing the same things, but that's my real identity. And I must say people have been a little bit politer to me, uh, maybe because they know I'm a real person, but Instagram is a different platform and the way people interact. Uh, and I guess it's a good example of your argument as well, how social media or interface changes the way we we interact with one another. But That's I, a great story. Yeah. You felt differently about it and other people reacted differently to you. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess, you know, Instagram is more a, a visual thing, right? Then you, you have to put a picture and then you write a caption, but people mainly see the picture. But on Twitter, you type and write. And people, in my experience, people who write on Twitter uh, follow more political or let's say uh, they're not really fun-loving people who put a picture of themselves when they're on a holiday. Not that much. It's mainly an academic platform or those who really want to follow political news or Instagram. And they are more biased and sometimes maybe more uh, argumentative. But, in, but that doesn't happen on Instagram. But anyway, that was my personal experience with that. But what are the? But maybe that's a good segue to my next question. Some of the advantages or maybe disadvantages of anonymity when and 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 your digital identity when you're on social media. There are many design decisions you make in creating an online site. The relationship between the person and the the real person and how their identity is represented online is one of those design decisions. How tight the link is between the person and their online presence. There are legitimate uses for every possible kind of identity. And the question is just picking the right one for a particular interaction design. So uh, if something like Facebook does a nice job of, if you want to keep in touch with your old school classmates, being identified by your real name makes sense because you want people to remember you as the person they remember from school way back when. Uh, if you want to participate in a support group about purple toenail disease, uh, which is highly embarrassing, uh, you might want to be anonymous and not let anyone know that you have purple toes. Uh, so, uh, there and, and there are a thousand different combinations. And we also need to remember that it's not just anonymous or identified. In fact, a lot of the time we are what's called pseudonymous. So if you pick a pseudonym to use online, if you use that pseudonym over a period of time, you begin to care about the reputation of your pseudonym. And the longer you use it, the more it behaves like a real name. Uh, again, it makes me think of my... Twitter account because I have been using it for two years and I had six thousand follow eight thousand followers in two years. Uh, yeah, and people were just calling me by that pseudonym. <laughs> that digital identity sort of became my identity. Um, last year, I was reading a book called Tyrants on Twitter, which was about misinformation campaigns by Russia and China on Twitter, and the author put in a series of let's say measures or recommendations in order to regular in order to kind of minimize or mitigate the risks of misinformation one of them was to uh for governments if you want to have a twitter account any account on social media the governments have to ascertain or validate your identity so you have to have a piece of document go to a government agency well i said to myself well it 
sounds easy in theory. It's very, very difficult to put into practice. And the other thing is that some people want to be anonymous for many, many good reasons. So that takes me to this chapter six of your book. How, how viable is it? How, how possible is it to regulate online behavior to make sure that the knowledge is produced is maybe the best knowledge possible? And I'm also thinking of maybe any sort of intervention or regulation might also be a violation of freedom of speech. I guess the perfect example was Donald Trump and Twitter account, which was suspended. So how, how viable is it to uh, regulate people's behavior, online behavior or interaction with others? It's regulating online behavior is a hard problem. And there are a lot of trade-offs. Uh, I think a lot of people have a naive view of freedom of speech. There are all kinds of speech that are illegal in every country in the world, like, for instance, uh, false advertising and slander. Uh, and we always limit speech in a variety of ways. Uh, the tricky thing is where you draw the line between what kind of speech is allowed and not. Americans take a very strong stance on freedom of speech, which is to say uh, we should allow as much speech as possible and counter bad speech with counter speech. Uh, most other countries take a different stance and make hate speech illegal. So hate speech is illegal, for example, in Canada, in Germany, uh, in a lot of the world. Uh, but once you make hate speech illegal, you need to define what you mean by hate speech. And then that becomes incredibly complicated. Uh, there's a Wikipedia page I love about hate speech policies in Australia that explains how the legal definition of hate speech is different in every province. Uh, and they list the legal definition for each province. Uh, it's fascinating to read. So it's not only between countries, but between provinces. What you can say and what you can't say is defined differently. Well, it, yeah, I'll definitely go and check this Wikipedia page after this interview. I'm living here and I didn't know about this. And you are quite right about the definition of hate speech. Because uh, like I told you, I'm kind of into political discussions and I follow the news. And when it comes to sensitive issues like Islam, a legitimate criticism of Islam is sometimes, uh, depends on, of course, who interprets it, is it's, it's sometimes misinterpreted as Islamophobia or hate speech. Um, and it's very tricky. And it also depends on who is the person who's deciding whether it's hate speech or whether it's it's a legitimate criticism or it's Islamophobic. So uh, and a lot of people are kind of taking it, that they're kind of abusing this, 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 let's say, blurred definitions to either silence the critics or some other, you know, biased people might just use that to to spread their hate speech or Islamophobic speech. So it's it's kind of a very uh, tricky thing. Uh, let's let's talk about the last chapter. So with all these recent scandals in terms of data privacy or how big tech companies are abusing the, uh, the privacy of the data of their users. So does the commercial nature of online platforms pose a threat to knowledge production or the authenticity of uh, online platforms and the knowledge that is produced there? I am increasingly convinced that platforms that are for profit, particularly ones that are funded by advertising, can never do the right thing for individuals or groups. When you think about the kind of design decisions you need to make, 
if your design decision is always guided by what will help me to get someone to see more advertisements, uh, well, it turns out that some platforms found that when people get into nasty fights, they stay on the platform longer. So if all you do is try and keep people on the platform longer, then you would try and encourage people to be as nasty as possible uh, because it increases time on the platform, which increases ad views and uh, helps you with your quarterly financial report. Uh, that can't be how you make decisions. It doesn't work because the thing that is guiding people's design decisions is not about how to make people's world better. Uh, and it has to be. And I am increasingly convinced that there's no way to fix it for commercial platforms, that what we need is much more non-commercial social media designed with human values and goals for what kind of world we want to live in and what kind of people we want to be. Uh, and let me end this interview with a kind of a cheeky question. I have your permission to ask that. Well, first of all, what I found interesting in the book is that you did use Wikipedia as some of your, re in your, some of your references. And it's also amazing how you, used G you talked about GPT in 2022 when literally nobody knew what it was. But I guess in Alaska, I only discovered that about three weeks ago, I guess, a friend of mine showed it to me. I was amazed. And I'm kind of playing all sorts of games with it. But I must say with GPT, I also I was also able to trick it. I argued with it about a mathematical formula, gave me the right answer, but I said it's wrong. He asked me to correct him. I gave him the wrong answer, wrong answer and he has kind of learned, my computer has learned the wrong answer and it gives me the wrong <laughs> answer because I've trained it that way. <laughs> but anyway, so the question I have is, you're a professor and you obviously give a lot of assignments to your students. So you give this piece of assignment to your students. They come to you, a lot of them come to you with, let's say, 50% of the references from Wikipedia. So you know that they haven't done the proper research, going to a library or maybe double checking those sources. And nowadays we also have GP, GPT, which is a some, some kind of a challenge for uh, higher education as well. Some students use it to write their assignments. So how would you, or how would your colleague feel about students using a lot of Wikipedia references in their academic papers. So I don't think anyone should ever use Wikipedia as a reference. I do it in the book a few times for things where there, it really is the best source, like that page we talked about, about hate speech laws in Australia. It's a great compendium and there's nothing better. Uh, generally, what students should do is to look use Wikipedia to get an introduction to the topic and read the things that Wikipedia cites and then cite the thing that Wikipedia cites. It's kind it's of opinion. due diligence in research. Yeah, double check your sources to make sure it's uh, it's not it's not taken out of context. Yeah. yeah uh, is there any other project you're working on at the moment or any other monographs? Uh, I my lab is working on a, a couple things. Uh, we are starting a new project to help develop nonprofit social media, looking at uh, with the problems that have occurred recently uh, on Twitter. A lot of people have moved to nonprofit platforms like Mastodon. And I think at this moment in time, we have a unique moment to build new infrastructure uh, to make Mastodon work better or other similar open source alternative platforms. Uh, so we're right now building tools for content moderation on Mastodon. Uh, and the other thing I've been thinking about is uh, 
I teach a class on called Computing Society and Professionalism, which is the required ethics class for computer science undergraduates. And we use a textbook that hasn't been updated in a few years. I can't imagine continuing to use a textbook that's fixed in stone. I would like to create a crowdsourced information resource designed to teach people about ethics and technology, where when something happens like the release of ChatGPT, the resources grow quickly, contributed by lots of people about how to understand it and how to think about it. Just like the Wikipedia page, when someone becomes a Supreme Court justice, grows in an amazing way. Could we have a a page on an ethics resource grow in an amazing way when something unusual happens that people really need to understand? Uh, Dr. Amy Brightman, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us and sharing your thoughts on New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Morteza. It's really a pleasure.